the rest of you can open up to James chapter 5. We're in the first six verses this morning. I would submit to you that the wrong question asked leads to wrong discussion, which then leads to the wrong destination. Yesterday I drove up and down Capitol Expressway on the way to and from my son's water polo game a couple times, and I saw what happens probably most every Saturday, and that is people kicking tires and people having conversations around cars. Here's a wrong question that I think is true on Capitol Expressway, and that is to find out what the sticker price is, right? Asking what the sticker price is allows that person to then say, well, let's work back from that and see how much you save. Here is a blatant ripoff. Don't ever fall for this. You walk into a car lot and they say this, how much can you afford each month? Has anyone actually had this said to them? I have. How much can you afford each month? Like that's the starting question that we're going to work off and then we're going to find you a car that's going to match that amount. Parents, I would suggest you taking your kids on field trips at some point to show this process at work. It's fascinating. Cookies come out, balloons come out, coloring pages, depending on the age of your child that you bring. But they will start with that question. That will then lead to some discussion, right? Well, I don't know. I've got these bills, but I think I can afford this much. I mean, at this point, the guy's salivating, right? And then that's going to lead to a wrong destination. So it is with other matters in life. Uh, this is politics season and voting season, and I would encourage you, in fact, we're going to encourage you just with voter registration in the weeks to come, I would encourage you to be engaged in the process. Those of you who have visited another country, those of you who are immigrants from another country, understand uh, what a great freedom it is, what a great responsibility it is uh, to be involved in the process. But here are some of the things you're going to hear about if you've not heard about them already. Wealth distribution, taxing the rich, who deserves what? Who are the rich? Who are the poor? How are they supposed to be treating one another? These are topics that are being talked about and will continue to ramp up as we get closer and closer to the elections coming up. Here's the reality is that there are evil rich people and there are righteous rich people. There are evil poor people and there are righteous poor people. And what happens sometimes is there's there's a sense where you can tend to vilify one camp or the other. Instead of asking who deserves what, what, how much is too much, those kinds of questions, let me just submit to you a few different questions that, frankly, our text is going to explore a little bit. Here's the better question. Are you generous? Are you generous? To phrase it the way you would hear it in your mind is, am I generous? Right? That's one question. Here's another one. Where is my treasure? That's a far better question. Thirdly, how was my wealth acquired? So three better questions than some of the things that are going to get hours and hours of airtime and airplay. And just listen for how little you'll hear of these kinds of things. Are you generous? Where's your treasure and how was your wealth acquired? Those, those I venture to guess, will not be discussed very often. Uh, I have a title on here called Class Welfare. And uh, welfare is another thing that's going to be, you know, those kinds of topics and themes are going to be brought up. Um, and class warfare, of course, is what that's a play of words on. And, and here's the message for you, whether you're rich or poor, whether you think you're rich or poor, how you even define rich or poor. Here's... 
here's, here's your welfare. Here's how to fare well in life is to aim past it. I don't care if you're rich or if you're poor. If you are aiming past life, that's your welfare. That's the giant big idea of James's message here. Now, uh, some of you in this room take uh, probably supplemental vitamins. Uh, some of you eat vegetables to get your vitamins. There's different ways to, to get nutrients that your body needs, right? Some of them are more palatable. How many like broccoli? Any broccoli fans? I love broccoli. Broccoli's really fun. We trick our kids into thinking that it's trees and they're eating like dinosaurs and they, they, all, they all like it. Um, but uh, some of you don't like broccoli. I get that. Uh, uh, there's there's easy ways to get nutrients. There's 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 hard ways. This is one of those where essentially it's like I don't know if you've ever chewed on like a, a multivitamin, uh, but it can't taste that good, right? Uh, this is basically James saying here, like here's your nutrients. Chew on this for a while. It's not going to come off super palatable to you, right? There's no steamed veggie vibe. There's no aroma or anything like that. James is just going to come and kind of punch us between the face with some truths of things, and it's going to land pretty hard. And you'll hear it in the scriptures. Listen to, listen to this as I follow along. James chapter uh, 5, verse 1. Come now. Now before we go on, I have to go up to verse 13 of chapter 4. What does he say? Come now. He has two come nows, which are a little bit like, um, hear ye, hear ye. It's a little bit prophetic of the Old Testament. Listen, people of Israel. It's those kinds of things. Hearken your ear, right? These come nows... Last time he talked about a wealthy businessman who's going about making plans without God. Remember that? That was last week. Say yes. It was only seven days ago. Just bless your pastor today. Thank you. Uh, that was last week, right? Come now. You who say, I'm going to make all these plans and, and, and forget that God's going to part of it. Now he's saying, come now again. And he's talking to a different class of people. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. Keep chewing the multivitamin. Here we go. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Let me pray. God, would you give us ears to hear this morning what your message is uh, through this book of James. In Jesus' name, amen. Verse 1 of chapter 5 is this, judgment's coming. James is just like an Old Testament prophet, pronouncing judgment on the rich. He says the word miseries. In case you've lost touch, by the way, with what we just sang about, what do I know of holy? Are you a fire? Are you fury? Is God a God of love? Is God a God of wrath? This is why we're so passionate about saying, read your Bibles lest all we get are the parts that just taste like candy to us. And we begin to actually form God in our own image. God crosses my views a lot. I've been reading in the book of Ezekiel, some of you are on the the, uh, Project 366 plan, where we're just reading through the scriptures in a year. 
And in the book of Ezekiel, you're reminded of some of the fury and wrath that is poured out on sin. And it's just a fresh reminder. It lands on my ears really rough, and it's a fresh reminder how much God hates sin. Why does he hate it? Because it destroys his children. It upsets his creation. It's infecting people. So there's judgment coming, and then he goes on to list the crimes that are being judged. Now, first of all, I, what, I've dis, what I've decided to do is take these, uh, these different crimes that are listed and just kind of attach an animal to them, because some of you are animal people. Um, if you're taking notes, write this down. Here is the big idea. Misused wealth leads to misery. Misused wealth leads to misery. That's really, that's really James's pronouncement. He uses that very word. It's a judgment word, misery. Now, the first one, we're going to fly through these pretty quick, but the first one is hoarding. Here's the error of hoarding. Hoarding is self-centeredness. It is taking the attention and putting it out on you. You know when that's cute? Kindergarten. That's what every kindergartner does. They, the world revolves around them. If it didn't happen in their presence, it didn't happen. But supposedly, we grow up and we grow out of this, but sometimes I still act like I'm in kindergarten, right? And I'm 41. It's not very cute when you're 41. But self-centeredness is the heir of those who are hoarding. If you are hoarding, if you are storing up, it shows that you have no faith that God will supply you. It is up to you to prepare for your future. It is up to you to have enough. Don't you dare give away too much. Don't you use too much over here because it's up to you to store up. Someone who stores up in the way that James is pronouncing against, sees the abundance of God as a means of stockpiling for themselves. We touched on this last week. The storage unit industry. Drove by one yesterday. It looked like a cute lighthouse. I'm like, well, that's funny. All they are is just boring boxes filled with stuff. Not against the whole industry, but it is interesting that we have so much stuff Look at verses 2 to 3. There's so much stored up that the wealth is actually rotting. What does wealth look like in Bible times? Here's basically it in three things. It's essentially grain, clothing, and precious metals. That's what wealth looks like. So when you have things that are going bad, rotting, precious metals that are corroding or tarnishing, that's, that's wealth. Most of you remember the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000 people, and he calls his disciples around to him, and he begins to hand them food from a little boy's lunch, right? Now, you can only imagine what it would be like if those disciples had received that and said, wow, thank you, Jesus. This is good bread. And they just start eating it. And then he, and then he hands them some more, and they're like, wow. And they're just praising God. I mean, their hearts are overfilled with thankfulness. We're supposed to be a thankful people. So they're thankful, and they're eating some more. He's given them fish and bread, and he hands them some more, and they just, they just keep eating. And then at some point, what happens? Jesus, I'm stuffed. I couldn't possibly. But he hands it to them anyways, and so they receive it and go, I don't want to be you know, rude to, to the Savior of the world, so I'll take it. But I really can't eat another bite. I'll just put it here in my sack and, and store some up, I guess. And Jesus just keeps giving it. And what if they did that? What if that's what it was? that they just kept stockpiling more and more and more. You would hope that one of the disciples at some point, what, would have a light bulb go on, right, and say, 
wow, there's a whole hungry hillside of people. Maybe we should give some to them. Maybe we should share. The story doesn't go that way. Go read your Bible to make sure you get it straight. But I would imagine that if that was the way the story went, that you would see a picture of Jesus just weeping as he pours out blessing upon blessing, gift after gift. And after we have become so bloated and we can't possibly eat more, the the thought in our mind is to store it up for tomorrow. To store it up for a rainy day. To to make sure that that we could bring some back to our family and, and do some good to us and ours with it. That would be a tragic ending of the story. Fortunately, it's not how it went. In Matthew 25, uh, you can just write that down. We're not going to turn there. But in Matthew 25, Jesus is talking about giving out talents to different people. One of the servants, do you remember what he does? He takes the talent and he buries it. He takes what God's given to him. It's a word for wealth. He takes his, his gift and he just buries it. And in coming back and talking to Jesus, Jesus comes to settle accounts. He wants to find out what each servant has done with the wealth given to them. What does he condemn this servant as but wicked and lazy? Some of you think that's really strong language for this guy. I mean, he didn't go out and squander it on himself. There could have been worse things, right, that he did. But Jesus uses the words, you wicked and lazy servant. What did the guy do? He took his treasure, he took his talent, and he hoarded it, he buried it, he stored it up for a rainy day. Why on earth does Jesus get so uptight about this? Why is this such an offense? Here it is. Because it stands before you as a witness against God. Do you not think that if God gave you this to be used in his service, that he won't supply you more? It actually shows, it would be similar to you as a parent giving something to your kid, and they get a lollipop, and they just go, I'm going to save this forever. I don't dare open this. Because I may never, ever get another one in my whole life. And I finally got a lollipop. And you as a parent are like, we... we we give him sweets, honestly. Like, you know, you would feel to your friends, like, eat the sucker. You know, there's more where that came from. There, there's a lack of faith. There's a lack of uh, trust in God. Last week, we talked about, uh, about planning ahead. The whole message was not about anti-planning. Remember that? That's not what that, that message was. Planning ahead's a good thing. But planning, on, uh, planning ahead without God is the problem. Planning ahead for living on this earth only is the problem. Some sitting in here this morning probably reflect some fearfulness about your planning in the future. I know it's a struggle for me. We're told to be anxious. We're told to worry about nothing but pray about everything to the God who owns it all. And yet fearful worry can creep in. Selfishness can creep in. A lack of confidence and doubt can creep in. Listen to Romans 8.32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us what? You know it. All things. The picture in your mind for that is this. If God would send his son to die on a cross for us, 
how much more the health things that concern you, the money things that concern you, the wisdom things that concern you, the decisions that concern you, how will he not give us with him all things? There's this monster called more. And common objections to, uh, to this are, well, I thought storing up for a rainy day was good. I would agree with that. I think it is. The question then becomes, how much? How much do you store up? There's a great little picture that goes on when, um, I don't know that we did this last year, but oftentimes right around this year, we'll go do a canned food drive in the neighborhood and just kind of walk through. And what happens is you'll find people who are, who are reaching into their pantry and they go, man, we've had this for a long time. Now, it's not rotting because of modern technology and canning techniques, right? But yeah, surely we could get this in the hands of someone who's hungry tonight and needs some food. And it's, it's not meant as a witness against them, but, but I pray as I walk that neighborhood, I go, God, as you see, you know, as, as our neighbors see our young people running around on a beautiful, crisp November, you know, Saturday with their time, just gathering food that's already there for people who don't have any, would you just let that land as a silent little, uh, you know, testimony about what this person's life is about, about where their life's going? I don't know anything about them. I just pray over that household as I'm walking the neighborhood, driving, trying to pick up kids from where they're running to, to and from next. So this question is, how much more should we do? If your pantry's full, should you build a second pantry? If that pantry fills up, should you, should you build a back shed where you have lots and lots of food? At some point, everyone in this room would reach their tipping point and go, that's sick, that's weird, that's hoarding. Get them on a reality show right now. Come on, let's go. But think about it. There's someone else in this room who's looking maybe at our lifestyle, looking in on us, saying, wow, that's weird. That's pretty sick. They could have food for like six years. Where's the trust in God for that? There's a great little book called 101 Ways to Simplify Your Life. I have one copy. There's a lot more of you than that in here. You're welcome to borrow it from me. I'd love to pass it on. It's a missionary named Paul Borthwick. Simple little book. I don't even know if it's in print anymore. I read that when I was a young married. I was a junior high pastor making about $1.50 a year. It was very, very stringent and tight. We got to know Top Ramen well. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner, right? That's, that's the mode of life we were in. I read this little book, and, and it was a great little read, and, 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 um, and I pass it on to you because there, there are just some little tips in that that I've revisited that we've incorporated into our life. One of the things he talks about is this, about exercising your discernment muscle. Some of you are ripped and work out. Some of you just aren't. You, you know, your, your sit-up is you know, reaching for the Cheetos, right? And then you're back down. Um, but when you work out a muscle, it gets stronger. And when you can discern between a want and a need, void of people who are selling you that stuff, but you really begin to work out the muscle, is this a want or is this a need? And that begins to change your life. It begins to change the course of your spending habits. It begins to help fill in the blanks of how much is too much. And you can begin to answer things a little bit more clearly. Money has this power to draw our dependence away from God and towards stuff. And ultimately ourselves in getting more stuff. It also has this this power to, to cause us to forget God. Write down Proverbs 37 to 9. Here it is. Two things I ask of you. Deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. 
Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. You ever pray that? God, don't make me rich. Don't you dare make me rich. Please answer me this. Don't make me rich. I don't want to forget you. God, don't make me so dirt poor that I'm going to profane your name and be tempted to steal and go around cursing you. Would you, would you keep me from those two extremes? What a powerful prayer right there in the middle of our Bibles. Remember last week, God's will is not hidden. You just read the word, and when it says to do something, that's God's will for your life. We know so much more than we're living. 25%, one quarter of Jesus' parables talk about money and possessions. You want to begin to understand what are you to be thinking about money and your possessions? Read the parables. It's Jesus teaching about stuff of life. There's over 800 verses in the Bible about money. God's will is not hidden. Let me give you three before we move on. This is in the, in the scope of taming the more monster. Number one is to use your wealth well. Luke chapter 12, 33 says this, Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out. A treasure in heaven that will not be exhausted. Where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. Use your wealth well. We're going to talk about more of this in just a second, but I thought about charitable, charitable giving. I'm not going to bore you with stats, but I went and did some research this week just on where the percentage is right now on evangelical Christians who would name the name of Jesus Christ. And the data is, is maybe not shocking to us, but I think it would be shocking to those who lived in different eras. A very small percent of evangelical Christians gives the vast majority of all charitable giving. And churches, far and away, have the most charitable giving. So kudos to that. But here's here's the one-sentence sermon on that. If charitable giving never pinches, give more. If you never feel the pinch of charitable giving, you're not giving it. You're not giving sacrificially. That's not a generous heart. Give more. There should be things that you would like to do, but you can't because you're committed in in this ministry or that ministry or giving through your local church. Here's the second one. Don't only use your wealth well, but hope well. 1 Timothy 6.17 says this. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, that's another word for proud, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. I mean, do you see the faith involved in that statement? Don't put your hope on this. That's not going to cause enjoyment. God is going to give you everything you need to, to, to enjoy. It's a trust issue. Number three is to hoard well. 1 Timothy 6.18. If you're going to hoard, do this. Talking about the rich still. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Thus, storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. All right, so don't be a rat and don't copy the rats. Here's the second one. Cheating or fraud. These are the fat cats in society, right? Verse 4, Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your field, which you kept back by fraud, 
are crying out against you. Here's the error of the fat cat. It's using money to manipulate. Now, here's the question. Have, has God's ears, have God's ears in all this time that have gone by, have they grown dim to the cries of those who are being oppressed? Are they no longer sensitive to those who are crying out to their God? God, I'm being cheated by my boss. Would you please provide for me? They haven't. Now, there's a new reality show that came out uh, this fall. It's where uh, regular Joes get to dress up as refs and call real NFL games. And the pinnacle, the finale was awesome. Because in the finale, you have two refs that came in at the end of a game. Everything's on the line. The Hail Mary pass goes. It's Monday Night Football. There's one game on in the whole nation. The way they set this up was, was really, really, really profound. And then they scripted it where these two guys would come in and one would give the touchdown symbol, right? And the other one's right next to him in the shot going, that's an interception. All right, it's not really. But guess what happened uh, a few days later? The lockout with the refs was over. Here's the big question. Why? Ultimately, why? The product of the NFL, the name of the NFL, the brand of the NFL, which make no mistake, I'm sure people love football, but there, it is a booming business, right? Those owners all of a sudden thought, huh, this can't be good for our business. We're going to lose revenue on this one. So all of a sudden you have owners who many would look at owners and say, man, those are just the epitome of fat cats. They're using people's bodies to promote a product, to make billions of dollars. I don't know whose side you're on. There's always two sides in a lockout right now, right? Right now there's NHL going on as well. You know, are you on the ref side or the owner's side? The player's side or the owner's side? Some people look at all of that. They go, they're all a bunch of wealthy whiners. I don't care about any, any of that at all. There's always two sides to it. Amen. I got an amen from that one. My husband's watching less sports. This can't be bad. Keep locked out, Right? Here's the bottom line. It's, it's about money. And, and that one play, it was incredible how that one play hit into, into non-sports media outlets like crazy. And that got, that got the wheels moving on something that previously was locked out. Now you can move up from football to, to the whole Occupy thing, right? Occupy was all about the Wall Street fat cats. Everyone on Wall Street, if you say you work on Wall Street, you're just a fat cat. And on and on it could go. Here's the interesting thing, though. Some of you are sitting here in this room saying, man, my boss is one of those fat cats. He just walks around. He's all about the money. Man, my landlord's a fat cat. He does this, that, and the other thing. Here's the interesting thing. You ever met a fat cat? You ever met someone who thinks they're the fat cat? I mean, no one thinks they're the fat cat. Everyone's calling other people fat cats. There's got to be fat cats around somewhere, but no one's the fat cat. Now, some of you have traveled outside of our county, outside of our country, outside of our continent, and here's what you begin to realize. You want to know who the 99% are and who the 1% are? We're the 1%. Worldwide, much of the world could look at us and say, you're the fat cats. The whole nation, the whole lot of you. I don't care if you're homeless. You're eating better than me. You have more security in eating and sleeping and being in safety with your life and your family than me. 
This is not a message about making you feel bad or me feeling bad for where we grew up and what we have. I will say that when you travel to other parts of the country, you come back with renewed lens of what we have. Not here to name call and figure out if we're the fat cat or not, but I just want to say this. Whether you are being withheld from or you are doing the withholding, there's something called fraud protection. It's not a little program that you load onto your computer and you'll be all safe. Here it is. It's one word. It's the word justice. If you want to know how to protect yourself against fraud, it's the word justice. If you are wondering, gee, am I one of those? Am I guilty of withholding things? Am I the one who's being withheld and it's against, it's against, it's out of my power to even be doing that? And this happens not just in large boardroom meetings and with people's pay cuts and pay salaries and lockouts and all that kind of stuff. It happens, doesn't it, on a very, very micro small scale. Little tiny things that test our integrity one way or the other. Fraud protection. Uh, justice is simply this, being 100% truthful 100% of the time. You look at justice in the Bible, it is a giant theme of the Bible. You want to talk about the gospel, what's the gospel? But justice, it's talking all about justice. In Hebrews 11, I've never seen it quite this way, but there's an interesting way to talk about faith. Hebrews 11 is a great chapter on faith. And one of the things it says about those heroes that have gone before us in faith says this in Hebrews 11:33 who through faith enforced justice. Why does enforcing justice, why does pursuing justice require faith? How is it tied to faith? This was illustrated last week. I went to my dad's house. He, sell, he, was, he was selling his, uh, his truck and his trailer. So he's there selling his stuff, and they're going through the whole process, and I'm kind of there just to help. My dad can't get around a bunch, and we're doing the paperwork and the process and all that. He's got the pink slips out. And he gets down to the pink slip time, and I hear the guy. We're around my kitchen table. This is where I grew up eating, you know, all my meals and all that. And, and uh, this is an acquaintance of my dad, but he doesn't know my dad super well. He's done some work for my dad. So, so the guy says, um, he gets to the selling price portion of a pink slip. Now, some of you know where I'm going with this, and that is, depending on what is filled in there is what you're going to be taxed as you transfer the, the uh, title, right? So here's what he says. He goes... He goes, so what's the price? The, the price was crystal clear. It had already been stated several times. It was on the table, so to speak. What's he doing right now? He's fishing. Right? He's fishing for a lower price. He's fishing for the number that my dad will sign that will be low, so low that he doesn't have to pay as much taxes on it. So he tosses out a number. And, I, and I'm just going... Hot dog! This is going to be fun to see. He doesn't know my dad. I mean, my teenage years were about tossing out numbers just like this guy's trying to do. He doesn't know my dad. My dad's not going to budge on this. That's all my dad said. He doesn't have much of a voice right now. Here's what he said. The guy threw out a number. And uh, he he goes, no, it's this amount. And he just went back to what it was. And here's all he said. Not condemning, filled with grace, but full of truth and justice. He said, God will provide. This guy was already getting a great deal on both of these items. My internal, just flesh, was, was, was mad that he was wanting to get more of a deal out of it. It was unjust. It was lying. 
All my dad said was this, no condemning sermon. He just said, no, the price is this. God will provide. And I, it diffused me. I was like, wow, that's true. That's faith. My dad enforced justice by faith in that moment. The person trying to get less money written on that paper so they will have to pay less is doing something. They are trying to manipulate the system. They are trying to figure out a way to be rewarded now and not thinking about the end reward. How much money would have been saved for that person's integrity to be flushed down the toilet in that moment? A few hundred bucks? When you put it that way, it feels really cheap and chintzy to go, man, I was about ready to flush my integrity what is just and right to do for a few hundred dollars. And that looks really chintzy all of a sudden. It looks really ugly at that point. Love seeing that. That's the picture of not being fraudulent, of not withholding. There's a lot of different ways to do that. Don't be a fat cat and don't fear the fat cats. Number three is pampering and indulgence. Had to put a pig up there. There's two words I want you to look at. They're found in verse 5. The word luxury and the word pleasure. Your translation may read a little bit different. And then the words on the earth and in the day of slaughter. Those, those line up together. Luxury and pleasure on the earth in the day of slaughter. Here's the error. Money is going to fill me up. Jesus told a story in Luke 16 about a rich man and Lazarus. This is a different Lazarus than he rose from the dead. Talked about the fact that the rich man had fine clothing. He feasted every day. But remember this, his life is a mist, right? There it is. It's gone now. Now we're in eternity. The rich man who feasted every day and wore fine clothing is now uh, looking at this poor man, Lazarus, who on the earth had sores and was a poor beggar. And Abraham's on the scene. Verse 25 says this, but Abraham said, child, remember that you, talking to the rich man in your lifetime, received your good things. And Lazarus, in like manner, bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And then he goes on to talk about a great chasm, a giant gap that can't be crossed. And this rich man's saying, let me just have the tiniest blessing. And it can't be crossed. Because in this life, you had your reward. Now Lazarus gets his reward. What a picture. Fattening up the heart for the day of slaughter. That's a pig eating until he's bloated and then eating some more. And thinking all along, wow, Farmer John is so nice. He keeps feeding me and feeding me and feeding me. What a good friend Farmer John is. And I look around at our society and I go, man, how many people are just being fed, fed, fed? And we think, man, what, what good they're doing to me. Fattening up the heart for the day of slaughter. All right, that leads to our Cowboys done for the week. Broke is what happens when a cowboy lets his yearnings get ahead of his earnings. So there it is. There's two kinds of broke. There's wallet broke and there's soul broke, right? There's, a, there's an empty wallet and there's an empty soul. Some people empty their wallet to go after what will fill up their soul and end up with an empty soul as well. And if you're broken, both of those, that's a bad camp to be in. Here's the hard issue at stake, contentment. Every single ad you ever look at is, is trying to accomplish probably one of two things. It's either a sense of need. Remember I went back to discerning that, working that muscle out to discern a want versus a need. It's either trying to stir up a need that you didn't know you have because you don't really have it. 
right? Because it's really a want. Or it's trying to make you discontent with what you already have. Discontentment and need. That's what ads are. That's what they're trying to kind of stir up in you. They're kind of trying to stir up your passions. James alluded to our cowboys done really clearly a couple chapters ago. You want, but you don't have. So you go after it and you kill. He's going to bring up murder again here in a second. First Timothy 6 is this. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires, and plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith, from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Remember the opening question, are you generous? You know what the generous person says? The generous person says, how much can I give? How much can I give? We read of the Old Testament. There's a time where, where they're, they're bringing just offerings. No requirement here, just offerings. And they say, stop, stop bringing so much stuff. We, we don't have the means to, to put this into service right now. There's some beautiful pictures in, in the New Testament church where Paul's talking about, man, this church... They gave out of their poverty. They had nothing, but they just kept giving. It's a beautiful picture of where their faith is, of what their trust is in. The word tithe literally means one-tenth. So people ask sometimes, how much should I be giving? How much is enough? That's a valid question that I think you ought to be exploring. If you want to talk about Bible times, they say, well, there's, there's the tenth in there. That's, you know, a tithe. That means tenth. So should it be ten percent? Well, if you go through the Old Testament and you add up all the the offerings and things that were required through the season, it would actually be somewhere more around 25%. That's roughly what's required in there. Now, we don't require, we don't teach at this church, you must be giving 10% or you must be giving 25% or just for good measure, we'll kick it up to 35%. We don't teach any of that. In the New Testament, what you see is you see this picture of a, a a new era of grace. I think 10% is a great starting point, and that's where we started as a couple and said, we're going to start there. But the generous heart is the big question. How much can I give? Here's one of the lies that, that comes on all of us. The lie is this. There's going to come a day when it's good to give. There's going to, be, there's going to come a good season in my life when you can give. Let me just track my life for a little bit. I was a poor college student. Was it a good time to give then? No, it wasn't. It wasn't convenient. It wasn't easy. It wasn't, you know, happening at that point to just feel like giving. But I had been taught to give, so I gave. I became a young married person. Young married people usually can attest. There's, there's not a good time to give usually when you're young married. Then kids come along. Kids are cute and expensive, Right? Sometimes really cute, mostly really expensive, right? And so kids come along. And you say, well, is it conducive? Is it easy to give when kids come along? It's just not. It's not an easy thing to do at that point. And then they have activities, and then you have things to do and things to provide for, and then then they're off to school and college, and and life happens, and then you finally hit retirement, and 
and you, you know you, you finally get to spend some time try whatever there's never a good season here's the lie there's never a good easy season to give it's a hard issue of saying god i'm content with you you've given me some clear parameters of what a want versus a need and please help me listen to you and not my culture not even my own family don't even let the status quo here at our church be what keeps you back from being all that god's given you be a generous person from start to finish all right so don't be a pig and don't envy the pigs here's the last one betrayal verse 6 says this you have condemned and murdered the righteous person he does not resist you the final error we see is using wealth for straight up evil just pursuing evil with your wealth james 2 6 he's talking about this he says isn't it the rich who oppress you and drag you into court he calls out the foolish envy people have of the wealthy. You know what the wealthy do? They're being corrupted and they're attacking you. Don't envy them. Don't envy them. Now, murder seems like a strong word. We see that tied uh, elsewhere in James. But let me say this. There's more than one way to murder. There's a way of using the system to kill those who can or won't resist. There's a way of taking pink slips and filling out a, a different system. That's cheating somewhere down the stream somewhere. There's ways of being in the control of things and manipulating things in such a, in such a way that you are stealing, robbing life from other people. That's a precursor to, to murder, if nothing else. Psalm 62.10 says this, Put no trust in extortion. Set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase... Set not your heart on them. And I can think of no better example of this than Jesus being led to slaughter, and yet he didn't resist. Was he righteous? Yes. So don't aspire to be a snake. This quote from, uh, from Barnes sums it up well. He says this, And there is no sin in merely being rich. Where sin exists among the rich, it arises from the manner in which the wealth is acquired, the spirit which it tends to engender in the heart and the way in which it is being used. I wrap up with an alternative. Take all of that teaching, and whether you're on the receiving end of people who are hoarding against you, who are defrauding you, who are maybe even beginning to murder you, or if you're on this end of the court and you're saying, I'm being convicted that I'm one of these animals. Let me offer you another picture. It was three years ago in October that we were teaching on what the church is to be about. And 1 Peter 4.10 says this, Each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. What we talked about was this. The gifts that we receive are not just material stuff, not just money, but in fact our strength and our health and our time. Those are the various kinds of gifts that are given to you. God says, what do you have that you did not receive? Right? So those are the gifts that are given to you. What are you doing as a steward of those things? To illustrate that, many of you sat in this very room while teaching on this, partway through the service, we had ushers come and hand every single person in the room an envelope. And inside the envelope was some money, cold hard cash. Now, in case you weren't there, let me just bring you up to speed on what happened with that. They came to church, 
And instead of giving money in the offering plate, someone handed them cash. Fun, surprising way to live out a parable of what we were just teaching. Here were some of the observations. I let our church know that the money for this was not taken from the offering or the church budget. It was donated by someone for this specific purpose. Secondly, third, third grade through adults got to participate, and there were different amounts because there are different gifts. It represented the fact that some people received as little as maybe $5. Some people received as much as $50. And everywhere in between. And people got different amounts. The only thing the person in control of was what they did with it. They didn't get to control how much money they got. That's how it is with God. Some of you have great health. Some of you not so much. Some of you have great talent. Some of you not so much. What are you doing with what God's given you was the message. Here were the rules. You cannot give this back to the church. Number two, you can't use it to serve your immediate family or yourself. Hot dog. You know, here's lunch money. Number three, it had to be Christ-honoring. Do something with it that was Christ-honoring. In other words, we didn't want to empower evil. We didn't want to give money so that harm could be done, manipulation could be done somewhere else. Those were the three hard and fast rules. Here were the guidelines. Strongly... Uh, encouraged but not required. Here they were. Report back what happened. What did God do to you and to other people through your money that was given? Secondly, don't give cash. Dream a little bit here. Rather than just walk out and hand it to the first person that you think needed something, dream a little bit. Finally, be spirit-led. We know that God is a creator, not a copier. So just begin to lay it before the Lord and say, God, I just got this little weird windfall of 40 bucks. What do you want me to do with it? I didn't walk in here expecting it. It was handed to me. Man, it's yours in the first place. Do you see the picture? How is your paycheck any different, people? How is our health any different this morning? Well, I earned it. Who gave you the job? Who gave you the means to get educated? Who gives you the means to wake up in the morning and drive your car to even get to the job? Who gives you the means of mind and body and strength to do what you do? It's all a gift. It's being handed to you. You know what we risked? I told this. Most people got really excited about this as I've told this story over the years. So fun to see just what God did through that. A couple of people immediately said, man, how did you ensure that that money wasn't just like wasted off the wind? I said, you know what? We couldn't ensure that. That's part of the risk it is. But isn't that what God does? I mean, isn't that how God gives? God gives not with a sure thing comeback of investment. And interest. Band, I want you to come on up. We're going to wrap up with some song. And as we do, I leave you with this thought. We're about to take up an offering. I don't want you to give this morning to avoid wrath and misery and judgment. That's not the heart of what's being talked about here. I would want you to give to be like Jesus. The one who was rich, but who became poor, so that we who were poor might become rich. It's going to require faith in a big God to tithe, to give, to bring free will offerings, even when you don't see yourself making it this month. Talk to people who've walked before you and who've given through seasons of plenty and seasons of want, and hear stories about a big God providing. 
Don't give your money and then broadcast to Facebook, hey, I just gave it all, I'm kind of short on cash. You know what you do? You give your money in the closet right here with no one knowing what's going on. And you run home and you get on your knees and you pray to God, God, I'm taking you at your word. I can't possibly outgive you. You're the giver. So provide for me in here. If I've got wants that I think have turned into needs, cut them out of my life. I want you to give not to avoid wrath, but to be like Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the gifts that we are recipients of in this room. Would you keep us from ever being uh, disciples, God, who would hoard and who would thank and praise and share testimonies about all the good gifts you've given and never share. I pray, Father, that you would, in fact, be the evidenced Lord of every part of our life. And in part of that is where our treasure goes, where our mind goes, where our heart is at. Father, would you help us continually as a church leadership to be God-honoring stewards of not only the money that comes in, but the resources of people's time and people's energy and people's trust as they invest in this place. We thank you for this local church. I thank you, God, for the generous givers that mimic Jesus on a week-to-week basis. Pray that you would only increase our faith as we give. In Jesus' name.